Time to Travel with Taran Key. Well, a very good evening to you and welcome to this week's edition of Time to Travel. On the show this evening, I'll be chatting with Richard Holmes, freelance travel writer and iAfrica.com travel editor, about his recent trip to the Okavango Delta. I recently spent some time at the historic wine estate of Khrut Constantia, where I chatted with CEO Jean Nordia and winemaker Bulla Gerber about the new developments on the estate. And then Rian Mansa will be in studio, and he'll be telling us about the talks he'll be giving at the one and only in Cape Town, and he'll be speaking there about his adventures around Africa on his bicycle and around Madagascar on his kayak. And if you need any information about something you hear on Time to Travel this evening, you can find it on Facebook. Just go to Travel on SAFM. There's also a link there on the Facebook page if you'd like to download the podcast of the show. But if you'd still like to contact me directly, you can email me on travel at safm.co.za. Well, that's the lineup for this evening. I do hope you'll stay with me and enjoy the show here on SAFM. Time to travel with Karen Key. Well, Richard Holmes is back again. He did say he was going to be coming back. He's been all over the place, all over the world, in fact. Um, this one is slightly closer to home. The last time we chatted, he was off skiing in Italy. Richard, good evening. Welcome to the show. Evening. Thanks, Karen. Slightly closer to home, Akavanga Delta. Just a touch, yeah. Only a few hours away. And, um, yeah, one of my favorite wilderness destinations in Southern Africa, hands down. But you did one of those things that I don't like and you don't like either, particularly small planes. Yeah. yeah I'm not partial to small no, planes. <laughs> I'm not. You know, they're my absolute nemesis, and there's a good reason they're called vomit comets. Although, <laughs> I have to say, I, I still have a perfect, a flawless, a spotless record in all senses of the word, in that I've never managed to actually redecorate the inside of a Cessna 206, but I've come desperately close sometimes. So, yeah, I think the only thing I don't like about traveling to places like the Okavango is that they generally require a, a flight in a small plane. But it's a small price to pay. <laughs> okay, but you, you are out at the and beyond, and you've done and beyond destinations in the past. I have, yeah. I travel with them quite a lot. They mm. are, for people who may not know them, they're one of the main sort of safari lodge operators in southern and east Africa. You get people like Walden Safari, Singita, and, and beyond. They all play in a very similar space. I just, I, I happen to like the the, the lodges that Ambion run and the way they, the way they operate. Um, they, they're generally quite low-key, but they're very efficient. There's lots of good attention to detail. There's good food. There's good wine. So, yeah, whenever I travel, if I'm, if I'm doing safari stories and traveling around the, the, you know, the continent, I'll, I'll try and slot in visits to some of their lodges along the way. Um, and they run a couple in the Okavango. They, they run four, I believe, although this time I just got to visit two, which are a fairly fairly easy to get to, actually, surprisingly. I mean, in, what, what you, in a small plane. <laughs> if, if, just disregard the small plane. And, and I found that sort of drugs and not wearing heavy over... You know, you, the problem is you leave Cape Town on a winter's day wearing mm. jeans and a heavy jacket, and you get to the Okavango, you get to Maun, and it's, you know, the mid-30s still. And then you get in a small plane, which is closed with no air conditioning, and so bumpy and hot at midday and yeah, it all goes south very quickly. But, but this is anyway. your first trip to the Okavango. No, this is the second time. It was the second time that I've been to the Okavango, mm. and uh, um, my first visit was three or four years ago. So I've been desperate to go back. Uh, and uh, we talked uh, when we spoke about Italy about how you know it was surprisingly easy to get to Italy. Yes. And it struck me again going to the Okavango that you know three or four hours from your front door, literally, you can be standing on a channel of the Delta with hippos grunting in a pool and sure. crocodiles around you, you know, and amazing you know squawker herons flapping about. So so it's it, it's actually 
surprisingly close to home, uh, even though it may feel very exotic. And for those in Johannesburg, it's even closer. It is, yeah. Unfortunately, I, I flew directly from Cape Town to Maun with Air Botswana. Unfortunately, they cancelled that flight from the end of March. So oh, really? um, nowadays, I think there just wasn't the uptake, actually. You know, airlines need a mix of business True. and leisure travel, yeah. and Cape Town Maun is going to be almost entirely leisure. So it's not the end of the world. You can still fly direct from um, Johannesburg to Maun with um, both, I think it's SA Airlink or Express and Air Botswana both fly that route and you can go from Cape Town through Gaborone to and then connect onto a flight to Maun so yeah. it's, it's not too bad it's doable. and then once you get to Maun it's you know, a tiny, tiny little airport quickly through passport control and then about a 15 or 20 minute flight to whichever lodge you happen to be staying at So where did you stay with this time? I chose two lodges uh, both with fairly different fields which I think is quite, quite a nice thing to do and a lot of the guests that I met while I was there were doing a, an Okavango circuit um, so you, you stay at a few different lodges for a different experience at each. The first that I went to is called Sandibe, and it's one of the, the older Okavanga Delta lodges in the um, Ambion portfolio. And it's lovely in that it has a real lived-in feel. You know, you can you can tell that it's been there for a while. The trees have grown up around it. It's, mm. it's not pretentious at all. It's It's very... It's not rustic because it's got all the home comforts you could it's ask for. But mm. Yeah, but, but uh, you don't feel, you know, you feel like you can put your feet up on the bed and nobody's going to come and tut-tut at you. And uh, it's, it's halfway between, I suppose, what people would expect a bush camp to feel like and what a lodge should feel like. So the rooms are, you know, open-sided with, um, mosquito netting, you know, sort of roller wooden doors with, with gauze that you can, so that you, the whole, the delta comes into your room at night, you know, which is wonderful. You lie, lie awake at night and you can hear hippo grunting 20 meters away in the channel and sort of lions contact calling, hopefully a bit further than 20 meters away. Hopefully. <laughs> hopefully. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an outside shower and no, no sort of fancy bathroom and that kind of thing. So it's, it's very relaxed. And, but one of the nicest things about the rooms there is that each room has their, their own private little Deck, which is perched just above the channel that the um, that the lodge overlooks. The, the channel is actually a permanent river called the Santandibe River, which is where the lodge gets its name from. And um, every room have, has the, the, this private deck with a couple of day beds on, and you can spend the time in between your morning and evening game activities just chilling out with you know, a GNT if you fancy and a pair of binoculars and a bird book and watching the world go by. It's a great way to while away those hours because most of those lodges... Uh, gear the gear the day around the morning and evening activities, which at Sandibe and and the reason I wanted to visit there is that unlike other Delta camps, the the focus here is more on game drives, whereas a lot of people associate the Delta with Makoro and speedboat safaris mm. and that kind of thing. Talk about that in a second. But Sandibe is more focused on the the land side of things, so it's um, four by four drives in the morning and afternoon. Not that you aren't going to see the Delta just because you're on a 4x4. I think we spent probably about a third of our time driving through water that was often up to the bonnet, which was, you know, quite quite exciting. <laughs> Apart from the one time that we got stuck and then the guys had to jump out and try and sort of dig no, out our underwater. Water. Well, luckily there were no hippos in those channels. Okay. <laughs> they are around. You know, you stay away from the deeper pools where they definitely mm. are going to be around. But, yeah, I mean, you get crocodiles hanging around in those those pools as well. So you, the guides are... They're, they're, they're have to keep their eyes open, basically. Yeah. But um, so yeah, if people have been on game drives before, they'll understand what the what it's all about. It's you know three or four hours spent out in the bush with uh, a ranger and a tracker, and 
these guys are phenomenal at seeing uh, animals, you know, 500 meters away. They'll be like, oh, you know, lesser spotted X, Y, Z. And you can't see it. Are you still sort of going, <laughs> where? You know, all I can see is a tree. And there'll be a whole herd of elephant that you won't be able to spot. And they will have told you whether it's, you know, mother and, mother and calf and how old they are and all the rest of it. So, and I think that's one of the lovely things about going on a guided safari as opposed to a self-drive. Although in the Okavango, it's uh, hard, if not impossible, to take yourself uh, to see wildlife. Mm. Um, although, no, I lie. You can actually go up in the Moremi Game Reserve. There are areas like Third Bridge, which you can do uh, self-drive safaris and camping and that kind of thing. But if I were to self-drive myself around the Okavango, I would come back going, geez, there's no animals in this place. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and birding as well, you know. Mm. But I think my first visit to the Delta is when I first started getting excited about birds, uh, which can be, you know... In the Cape, there's sort of little brown jobs, numbers one through a hundred, you know, hanging about in the Fainbos, whereas in the Delta, the bird life is just prolific, and there's fish eagles every hundred meters, there's these incredible saddle-built storks, which have got wildly colorful heads, um, you know, the, the, there's little jacanas fluttering around on the, you know, sort of walking on water, there's squawker herons flapping about, there's... Uh, battlers and raptors and eagles and all sorts of things. There's just so much going on that you can't you can't ignore it basically. And whatever's there is exciting to, to see. So if you if you're either a fledgling birder or a keen birder, the Okavango Delta is just heaven on earth basically. Well I have one little claim to fame in Cape Town is the flamingos are back in the Lesbic River. I saw those Aren't the other day. Beautiful? They're lovely. Yeah. They're gorgeous. Wonderful. It's enough to cause a traffic accident driving along the freeway Absolutely and suddenly you spot this, this whole big fat load of, of pink things sitting in the water. I know, it's wonderful. In the middle of a city. In the middle of the city, these beautiful flamingos in the river. It's wonderful. So this one you said said is more the game drive type, and you said people do the circuit. So how many of these camps are normally in this particular circuit, and is there something different pretty much at each one of them? Well, it's entirely up to you. I mean, I think, you know, people often hop between different companies as well, although I think if you stick within one company, like an Ambiond or whoever it might be, then at least it's easier to, you know, they put together your whole itinerary, which is always a good thing. So, I mean, to my mind, uh, a circuit of two camps would be great, uh, looking at Ambion's portfolio, which is three of them are more watery, and then you've got Sandido, which is the, the, the land one. The land one, okay. uh, There's Nkabega, which is quite further north. That's a little bit older as well. Also has a bit of a lived-in feel, although it's been refurbished recently. That's on a permanent channel, lots of watery activities there. There's another one called uh, Kudum, which is a brand-new lodge built, I think, in 2009, which is lovely. I've stayed there as well. On, the, on my first trip, we stayed there. And quite modern, quite and stylish right on the delta right on a channel uh, and very focused around water activities and then the, the fourth in their portfolio is the, the second lodge that I visited on this trip which is called Karana and it's probably my favourite lodge in the delta and one of my favourite lodges anywhere because it's got this lovely playfulness to it it's not the traditional, I'm an Ernest Hemingway out of Africa, there's an elephant head above the fireplace kind of feel. It's, it's got more of a, a colorful, playful, light-hearted touch to it, you know. There's sort of little wooden carved hippos all painted white smiling at you on the deck as you arrive. The, there's a full edition of the Roberts um, bird book, but it's clad in pink leather, so there's this it's in a flash of colour and then <laughs> it's just the, the last time I was there uh, there was a little wind up crocodile which you know you wind it up and it goes sort of clack 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 you know with its jaws going up mm. and down 
across the dinner table and little playful touches like that really do it for me I really enjoy that people have just put a little bit of extra thought into into the, the decor and the experience of the place and uh, the rooms are really luxurious which is always a good thing um, you, you don't know. put your feet on the bed here um, look nobody's going to complain but mm. I would probably feel a bit too proud yeah. besides okay. I'd, I'd be outside on my private deck swimming in my private plunge pool rather than putting my feet on the yes, deck yes <laughs> if you're wondering I am about to smash so yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. and yeah the, the lovely thing at Karana is again all of the, the Sweets, and I think there are 12 or 13 of them, I stand corrected, they all have uh, frontage right onto a permanent channel. So you can be lying on your daybed after having a swim in your plunge pool, watching elephant cross the river, you know, cross the channel, uh, hippo grunting away, or, you know, buck feeding on the other side of the channel, which is just spectacular for me. So you can have the, a game experience without leaving your room if you choose that to. sounds <laughs> magical. It's wonderful, yeah. Although... You know, I would highly recommend you do leave your room. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If, if you're in the Delta, and especially at places like Karana and Kudum, the watery activities are fantastic. And I think that's what people go to the Delta for. So what know, are the watery activities? Well, there's, there's lots. There's the traditional one is the Makoro trips, which are, you know, the dugout canoes, traditionally made of, um, you know, fallen trees that'll be hollowed out. The, the ones used more commonly now are made of fiberglass. They have a perfectly flat bottom, so they're a bit more stable as well, which is always good because what you discover when you go out in Makoro is, and you go out with a guide pulling you along from the back and you're sitting up front sort of, you know, surveying, you know, Lord of all you survey sort of thing, watching the world go by. And and um, the way you go polling is generally along gaps in the reeds. And those gaps in the reeds have been made by hippo. <laughs> oh. When the hippo are going from their pools where they hang out during the day, the deep pools, through to their grazing areas at night, they go barreling along through the reeds. And they make these, these channels which are about two meters wide and maybe two meters deep, something like that. And you kind of realize, well, if that's the size of the hippo and I'm on his path, um, something's got to give. And all, all the guides joke that they, no, 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 we have a deal. We can use them during the day. The hippo use them at night. It's fine. Gentleman's agreement. Presumably they've shaken on it. And I, I just I trust that so. everybody's sticking to their side of the. the and there, there, the one of them sort of decided to, you know, rise up out of the water that you could actually. Um, yeah, in the you could find you, you could find yourself face to face with a hippo mm. going. Excuse me, I made this path. This, yeah. this is my route. But um, anyway, as far as I know, it hasn't happened for well, never happened on any of, any of my trips, and I haven't heard of it happening to to other guests. But I mean, look, it's that kind of little element of danger which is what makes it so exciting. You know, it's great. You're okay. pulling along, and the, the beautiful thing is that the water is crystal clear. I mean, if you, you can see them coming, you okay. can see them coming from a long way off okay. if you if you wanted to. Yeah, and I mean, to be honest, generally they're quite they they are a little bit skittish. Um, when you go on speedboat safaris, which is the other one of the other main uh, watery activities, you'll go into a pool where, you know, kind of a lagoon where the hippo will be hanging out during the day, and generally they'll keep their distance, you know, unless there's a grumpy territorial male, and there, were, there are one or two of them around, they might come looking for you, but generally the hippo will just sort of keep their distance, maybe show you their teeth and go, you know, oi, just <laughs> <laughs> you stay over there, we'll stay over here, everything will be fine. So the speed crocodiles, you eat a lot of them there? Crocs, um, you see them now and again, not as much as you might expect. Mm -hmm. um, that's something, yeah, they're, they're generally more... They're, they're, they're even shyer, and you know, there's not as much crocodile to see as there is as there is in hippo, but there there are crocs in the in the delta definitely. There's we had great sightings of elephant, great antelope sightings. I've seen cat on the side of the um, uh, it was a small caracal I think on the side of the delta previously. So you do get a surprising amount of mm -hmm. game there. Um, but I think for me, I, if I was a first time safari goer and I wanted to see the big five, the delta wouldn't be my first choice. I would say then go to Kruger or go to, you know, what one of the the bushveld was. 
reserves. So go to East Africa if you want to. Um, for me, the Delta, the, the real appeal of it is just the Delta. You know, I could mm. go to the Delta and not see a single animal, and I'd, and I'd be happy because the landscape is just magnificent. But, I mean, just from the two places you stated, I mean, you get a, quite a nice cross-section of different kinds of wildlife. You do, you do. Mm. I mean, you'll see a lot more aquatic stuff. Obviously, at places like Karana and Kudum, you'll see more of the large herds of elephants and that kind of thing um, at somewhere like Sandiba. So you do get a, you do get a wide cross-section. Um, and apart from speedboat safaris, I mean, they do some fun things at, at Karana, which I, I enjoy. There's, there's some areas where you can go swimming as well, they, which I know sounds incredibly counterintuitive. But, you know, th- these guys know what they're doing, so they choose their spots very carefully, and they find, you find an area of quite shallow water where things like crocodile aren't going to hang out. You make, they make sure that it's on white sand at the bottom, not black, not um, the, I think it's called black cotton soil, which is the, dark, the darker soil. Oh, they like so that. The, well, the crocs and things will like that. Yeah. So they'll find nice mm. white river sand, nice shallow water, good visibility all around, and it's fantastic. They take along lilos, they pop, pop some lilos down, pop a bucket of champagne down, and that's how you spend sort of half your day. I can think of nothing better. <laughs> <laughs> and I believe you, you can also do some fishing there. You can. It's one of the things they often offer uh, with the speedboat safaris mm. in the evening. So normally you'll go and um, you'll you know, pack a cooler box full of drinks. You'll stop on a little private island, have some sundowners, and then yeah, they throw a few rods in, and you can you can catch tilapia. There's African pike. There's what do you do with it if you catch it? Well, you can take it back for the for the kitchen if you'd like uh, to. Yeah. Um, there are there is a season as to when fish can be caught, mm. when fishing allowed, and that sort of thing. But yeah, I mean they're very popular with the local local people. Cats have caught them since time immemorial uh, but yeah you can take them back to the kitchen if you'd like to I just you know catch and release for the fun yeah. of it um, mm. but there's some fun stuff there. like I said there's African pike there's tilapia there's a beautiful fish called nembwe which is sort of shamrock green I guess you know it's this wow, beautiful okay. beautiful colour and I mean heck again I, I could happily just stand there throwing a line and casting and not catching anything for an hour and I'd be happy you know again for me the landscape of the delta is the main attraction you know and everything else is, is a happy happy addition They've also got a rhino relocation project there. They do, and this is really exciting because there are very few places in in Botswana where, well, in the in Okavango where you can see rhino. And obviously, I mean, everybody knows about the problems with mm. rhino poaching. And now, and beyond, have a reserve uh, down in uh, KwaZulu called Pinda, right up yes. in the north of Zululand. Mm. And I was there about 18 months ago, and we were amazed at the number of rhino. And partly, I think, to help manage that population, and partly for conservation, and partly to reintroduce rhino to parts of the delta where they've been. Hunted out, um, yeah, they've got this this incredible project at Karana where there's an island which is sort of guarded on you know all sides by by permanent channels of the delta. So it's a, a great place to be able to defend against poachers. And they've got a very jacked up anti-poaching unit which is based on this island, which is I think it's I stand corrected, but it's about 20 k's, 20 or 30 kilometers long by you know five or 10 k's wide. So it's a sizable piece of land. Um, and they've moved six rhinos onto this island and. They are going to. It's one of the few places in the delta where you can now see rhino. So they're going to be perfectly well protected. They're in the middle of the delta, which is a blooming long way for any poacher to get to. Mm. Um, on an island. On an island, which is you know easy, fairly easy to to monitor and control. And yeah, it means that people can now see rhino in the delta. It means that rhino that may have been at risk in South Africa are now being conserved. And yeah, who knows? The, the, that project might spread into other parts of the delta. So I think it's a fantastic project that they've that they've done called Rhinos Without Borders is what they've built. Oh, I love the idea of what they're doing, but I just also, on the other hand, find it rather sad that we have to go to those.
those extremes to protect the rhino. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, uh, yeah rhino conservation is in a bad place at the moment. Yeah. So I think, you know, if, if and I mean, the, that kind of thing idea. is not cheap either. So, yeah, you know, uh, kudos to them for putting that amount of effort and money into, into that sort of conservation. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. So it sounds really, I mean, as you said, this is your second trip. Um, have you anything else you haven't yet seen that you have to go back to see? Um, cheapest, cheapest. I'd like to see more of the Delta. I'd like to cover, you know, a, la- a, a wider area because I think as you get more up into the panhandle, the Delta changes character. It's where you get almost, you know, the river gets much wider, whereas down towards Maon where these camps are, it's only during the flood season, uh, which arrives sort of in, in winter when the flow, because uh, that's something people might not know actually, is that the Okavango isn't formed entirely or, or mostly by rain falling on the ground. It's actually the floodwaters from uh, Angola, which is about 50 1600 kilometers away it's when that flood comes down in July from the, sum, from the summer rains that have fallen and made their way down that's what forms the, the, the bulk of the Okavango Delta it gets topped up by the summer rainfall but it's, it's that annual flood which is the real highlight so to get up into the panhandle I think would be the next thing on the list to, to see a different side of it and they haven't been affected by this sort of change in climate and all that sort of thing, the, the less rain or... Well, this visit was in, uh, was in late January, and they had had less rain than they expected. Yeah, they'd had some good rains at the beginning, but definitely not as much as they, as they were hoping for. So, yeah, I look, I don't, think, I don't think something like the Delta, which is collecting water from an enormous catchment area, is going to be wildly mm. affected in the short term, but who knows, yeah. Who knows. Mm. Sounds wonderful. Um, Richard, you've still got some other places you've been that you haven't told us about, so you're going to have to come back yes again. I I'm do. Bright, bright lights rather than yes, big animals. bright lights. So we'll see you again soon. Great. Chat to you Thanks then. so much. I was talking there with Richard Holmes. He's the travel editor at iAfrica.com, and we were talking about his trip to the Okavanga Delta with a company called And Beyond. And if you want more information or if you'd like to make a booking, you can visit the website. It's www.andbeyond.com, or you can call them in Johannesburg on 11 809-4300 Midday Live is your lunchtime news fix We bring you 60 minutes of news around the globe Follow the top stories of the hour Some elements of freedom and democracy is that of majority rules 189 yes and 74 voting against the bill in the National Assembly Surely this is an overwhelming vote of confidence in the bill Exactly, I must say, but I must tell you that uh, it is not always uh, that the majority are always correct. And we think that they have not perused sufficiently what will be the implications of allowing every organ of the state to willy-nilly declare information as secret. Join us between 12 and 1 weekdays and stay ahead of the pack. SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. Time to travel with Karen Key. Well, I'm at one of my favorite places in Cape Town. It's the Fruit Constantia Estate. And I'm going to be speaking to Jean Nordier, and he's the CEO of Fruit Constantia. And he tells me that this doesn't belong to anybody in particular. It belongs to all of us as a nation. And uh, as I said to him, I actually live quite close by here, and I come and take up the challenge of it belonging to the nation and spend quite a lot of time here. Jean, there's a lot of new things going on here at Fruit Constantia. Tell me what's happening at the moment. We are experiencing quite a, a big influx of tourists. Um, over the last two years and we had to open a new tasting area to accommodate the people. We are bringing the 
the historical side of Groot Constantia closer to the wine side of Groot Constantia. And we've introduced a few historical panels telling the history of Groot Constantia in our tasting rooms. For people who don't know, this wine from Groot Constantia, it's, you can call it the wine of kings. It's been around for a good few hundred years and it's been revered all over the world. At a certain point in time, the late 1700s and the early 1800s, it was one of the most sought-after wines in the world. We've got proof of these wines going across the globe in terms of bottle pieces that was picked up across the globe, which carries the seal on which it is written, Constantia wine. Those seals were found in America, and there's proof of that it was shipped there as early as 1774, Germany, Belgium, and Stockholm. So this wine has been around for a long time, and what you are also launching today is the new label, the Governor's Reserve. So tell us a little bit about the history of that and the label, because that's a whole new, I wouldn't call it a new range of wines, but you're just rebranding them, I think, if you like, and with the new labels, and you've opened up the new tasting room here as well. The farm was started by Simon van der Stel in 1685, and he was, he was the governor of the VOC, and to honor him, we call our flagship wines the Governor's Range of Wines. And the Governor's Range of Wines has been part of our assortment for many years, but it was always sold as a normal Groot Constantia wine. We, we are at the point in time now where we are differentiating or we, where we are elevating the Governor's Range of Wines to sort of nearly a new brand of Groot Constantia wines. And we've change the labels uh, of these wines and being a historic estate instead of making these labels more modern we we're going backwards in time and we're using a label that were used 1960s 1970s on these new wines so it, it gives it a nice classic and historic feel but besides the wine there's actually a lot more to see here as a tourist destination you were telling us earlier about the numbers of tourists that you get here on a monthly basis tell us a little bit about the numbers first of all where these people are coming from while we were here we've seen a lot of of tourists already wandering around it is pouring with rain today but still the tourists are here um tell us a little bit about what else there is to see I mean, there's, there's parts of it that are run by Ezekiel museums tell us about the historic side of constantia the Ezekiel Museums of Cape Town are the custodians of the historical core of Groot Constantia. They see to the manor house, the exhibitions in the manor house, the exhibitions in the Clutus cellar, and we see them as the custodians of our heritage, which is a very important pillar of the Groot Constantia brand. So when you visit Groot Constantia, it's important to see the museums, to see the slave history, because Groot Constantia has got a very rich slave history. Although it's negative, it's, it's the truth, it's authentic, it's part of this place, it's part of society in those early years. And you can see this all at Groot Constantia. We've got two restaurants on the farm. We open seven days a week. There's two tasting rooms on the farm. We offer cellar tours. So it's really, it's a, it's a touristic place and when you come to Groot Constantia, you at least, you have to put aside at least half a day to, to do and to see and to experience everything at Ruth Constantia. And the number of tourists that you're getting here, are they mostly international or are we getting a lot of local South African tourists? 
There's a good mix between local and, and foreign. Depending on the time of the year, in December, it's mostly locals. But from January onwards to April, it's mostly Europeans. During the winter months, it's Chinese, Asians. So it, it all depends on the time of the year that you are here. But we, we receive a very international crowd here. Numbers, it's about 300,000 people visiting Groot Constantia annually. It is a, a vast area. So the, and also you don't have to be indoors in the lovely weather because the grounds are absolutely magnificent as well. You can wander around and you will never feel crowded at Groot Constantia. One of the things I remember from many years ago is the fact that Hurt Constantia also plays host at the end of the year for the Christmas parties, the Uncle Paul's Christmas parties, which the children just adore. And that's a wonderful thing that you give back to the community, allowing that to take place on the farm as well. So I'm sure a lot of people possibly wouldn't remember or know Hurt Constantia from that. Yeah, it's our social commitment, and we allow Rotary International to, to stage this party on the farm They've got a lovely castle in, in a secluded area on the farm. And it's been a tradition for the last 20, 30 years, I think, where children come, young children come, and they enjoy this. Rotary staged this function on the farm for about 30 days before Christmas. I was chatting with Don Tooth, the MD of Fergelechen, the other day, and he was telling me that together with Hurt uh, Constantia Fergelechen, you both in, it's called, I think, a serial nomination, and you are on the tentative list for recognition as a World Heritage Site. That's rather exciting. When is that going to be known? When will you know if you've made that? It's an ongoing thing. We've been busy with this for the last 10 years. The national government have to nominate a national heritage site. And, and obviously they've got several sites that they want to nominate every year. We are on that list. I, I don't know exactly where we are, what the priorities are, and those priorities changes every year. But we're definitely in, in line one day to become a World Heritage Site. Well, I think after all that's gone on here and all that's still going on here, you certainly deserve that recognition and uh, hopefully brings lots more tourists. Can you cope with more tourists? We, we'll make a plan. And, you know, we're tasked to fly the South African flag. We need to tell people of this magnificent wine heritage that we have at Groot Constantia. And it's not only wine heritage. It's heritage. It's South African heritage. And it's our job. It's our purpose to expose as many as possible people to this heritage. And we'll accommodate them without spoiling the, the stature and the nature of Groot Constantia. And if people want to have a look before they get here to see exactly what's happening, you have a website that they can go to? Yes, our website is www.grootconstantia.co.za and everything is there. Contact numbers, where you can make bookings for seller tours, bookings at the restaurants, etc. Well, Jean, thank you so much for your time and uh, hopefully we'll see lots more locals coming because I love people to explore where they live, explore your own city, your own town, your own country. Come and enjoy the history and the wonder of Fort Constantia because honestly, once you've been here once, it's going to be one of those places where you just have to keep going back. I know I do that all the time. I was speaking there with Jean Nordier, and he's the CEO of Fruit Constantia here in the Cape. And if you'd like to find out more about what's going on here on the estate, you can have a look at the website. It's www.fruitconstantia.co.za.
and a little more information on those old bottles. Well, Groot Constantia is South Africa's oldest wine farm. It's been in existence for 328 years this year. And wine has been produced on the estate without interruption since 1685. And in fact, Groot Constantia bottles, bottle shards and bottle seals dating from as far back as 1774 have been found in far corners of the world in some very unusual circumstances. One bottle was found at the bottom of the ocean in the archipelago outside Stockholm in the late 1940s by a diver. Three bottles were discovered in the cellar of a castle near Belgium that date to the period 1760 to 1840. A bottle piece featuring the Constantia bottle seal was discovered on a beach in the Delaware Bay and identified by historians to be part of the cargo of the Savone. Now, that's a ship that was stranded there in 1774. And another find was a very crude example of the Constantia wine seal, evidently far older than all the other examples, which was unearthed in an excavation in Meiningen in Germany. That's quite some history, wouldn't you say? You wouldn't be surprised to know I'm actually still at Kurt Constantia, as I told you, one of my favorite places in Cape Town. And right now I'm speaking to Bula Herben. He's the winemaker here at Kurt Constantia, an award-winning, I think, winemaker. And we're going to find out all about that. Bula, welcome to the show. Thanks, Corinne. Right, the first thing I need to just speak to you about, because this is very current, is that in the SA Top 100 Wines, Kurt Constantia has got four wines in the Top 100. That's quite an achievement. Four percent of the wines are from Kurt Constantia in this year's SA Top 100. Yeah, Corin, we're very blessed. It's a, uh, is a beautiful farm. Uh, I can see why someone from the cell when you had the whole of the Western Cape to choose from, why I chose Constantia. So, no, I think, you know, it's beautiful soils, beautiful climate. So, no, we really are blessed with a beautiful climate for, uh, for producing some amazing wines. So, what are the wines, the top four wines, the four wines that you've got in the top 100? Um, the Chardonnay 2012, uh, Shiraz. 2010, uh, Governor's Reserve, our flagship red blend, 2010, and our sweet wine, the Grand Constance, also 2010 vintage. So we're talking real top quality wines coming off this estate here, but now you've decided to change. You, you were explaining it to us earlier. You did ask if any of us were confused. We were slightly confused, but this whole change in, the, in, in what you were doing, just, can you just tell us what is actually happening here now? There was a big turnaround at Hood Constantia about, say, 15 to 20 years ago. A lot of old vineyards replanted, more sort of disease-infected vines sort of uprooted and replanted. Anyway, so as the sort of new vines started to show better quality, obviously the quality of the wines increased as well. And we had a few single vineyards that performed really well, and we bottled those single vineyards separately. So, for instance, we had a, a reserve Sauvignon, which we call it Cabernet Sauvignon. We, um, we had a few Merlot vineyards also that uh, was bottled separately as like a, a Gavinus Merlot, Gavinus um, Shiraz. And I think it got a bit confusing because we didn't produce it every single year. It's only in exceptional years. So people didn't know exactly what the Gavinus range was. And because we didn't produce it every year, I think it was quite difficult to market a product that you can't uh, guarantee supply. So I think it, was, it became a bit of a marketing nightmare. So we decided to streamline the process and have one varietal range. And then for, for, the, for the exceptional uh, vineyards, we bottled that as a, a reserve white blend and a reserve red blend. Okay, so now if we come here now, what, what can we find? What does the range consist of at Hoek Constantia? Okay, it's, it, it's still quite a big range. We've got um, the dry white blend, and then we have Sauvignon Blanc, and uh, Chardonnay. Then we have a dry red blend because Sancho Root. We have Peletas, Shiraz, Cabernet, Sauvignon and Merlot. And then we have the reserve red blend, the Governor's Reserve. And the, the new label, the Governor's Reserve label, that's, that's also quite historic now. That, that was also launched today. 
It was good fun. With the uh, streamlining of the, the, the whole label range, we decided to find a new label to just set the, the reserve range apart. Eventually deciding that the new label is actually going to be a very old label. We found an old bottle in Mary Uribe's office, for old 1960 Shiraz bottle. And the label was so classic, it was so beautiful. So we literally took the label, the, the old bottle to a label designer and asked us to make a carbon copy. So, you know, so we're really excited. It literally is back to the future. Our unique selling point is our history. And I think the new label plays very strongly on, this, uh, on, on, the, on the issue of the farm. It was quite interesting to see earlier some of the old bottles that have been discovered all over the world, the old Constantia um, bottles. Was there anything in them? And if there was, did you try it? Most of the bottles we have at the moment are empty. There's one, there's a 1791 that's full. But I've been fortunate to taste the 1821 a few years ago, and I've also tasted the 1791. It's amazing. It's actually, it's actually amazing. Kind You can have a wine that's more than two centuries old, and the wine is like this thick black molasses, and it's very drinkable. It's very sweet, but it's actually phenomenal. So you could still actually drink it this long after it was bottled, 200 years ago? Yeah, no, the wine is fantastic. I have, no, I have no idea. That's, it, it, it's amazing. I mean, um, if you read in, uh, in the old books how they, how they made the wine, they meant they had zero technology, they had zero scientific knowledge, they had absolutely nothing to work with, and still the wines they made managed to last more than two centuries. So I have no idea what they did, but uh, somehow they managed to get it right. I don't think it's going to happen today because people can't keep it for that long. I mean, you actually, you actually said to people, we'll give you a bottle of wine and you leave, don't drink it on the bus on the way home, you know. <laughs> I don't think your wine lasts that long anymore. It's too good to last that long. So, but that, I mean, that, that's actually quite amazing to actually have wine that's 200 years old. That's incredible. I mean, it just goes to show the history of this place. I mean, it's been producing quality wine for that long. Yeah, I must say that you feel a bit of pressure when you, um, when you, when you drink something like that and think, geez, you know, I hope in 200 years, you know, the stuff that we're making today will still be sort of worthy of the label. But, uh, yeah, no, it is, it is, it is amazing. How long have you been the winemaker here at Quirk Constantia? We just finished our, well, my 13th vintage here on the farm. So, yeah, 12 and a half years on the farm and 13 vintages. It's quite a, a wonderful experience to be able to work on an estate with such historic significance. Uh, Carl, I'm very blessed. It's a, it's a beautiful estate, and uh, I'm very lucky to be. Um, I'm very privileged to, to, to sort of work with the quality of fruit. Like I said earlier, you know, it's, it's amazing soil and a fantastic sort of uh, moderate climate that we're working with. So, no, it, it really is a privilege. The positive side of being on the farm for such a long time, I think the first few years, you just need to find your feet. But now, after 13 years, you know, you know every vineyard has its own little... Their personality. A lot of the vineyards, we, we don't pick the, the whole vineyard sort of in one go. We pick it two to three times because, you know, this is like a sandy spot in the middle that ripens a bit earlier or there's a wet spot towards the end of the vineyard that you need to leave for a week or so extra. So it's actually, it actually gives you more confidence, you know, going into the vintage, knowing the, the, the strengths and the weaknesses of each vineyard and you can sort of play towards that. So, I mean, we actually have a game plan for each individual vineyard before the harvest, before the, vintage, the season even starts. The career world changes very fast nowadays, but when it comes to agriculture, specifically wine, um, there's definitely an advantage to get to know the soil and the, uh, and, and the farm so much better, to just you know, get to know the vines better, to, to prepare you to, um, to make better wines. So this is going to be somewhere, hopefully, that you stay for a while and continue to produce fabulous wines here at uh, Constantia. But, uh, Buddha, thank you very much for joining us on the show this evening, and uh, long may you produce, as I said, fabulous wines. Fantastic. Thanks, Corinne. I was speaking there with Bula Herben. He's the winemaker here at Kruit Constantia. And if you'd like to find out more about the estate, take a look at the website. It's www.kruitconstantia.co.za.
Time to Travel with Karen Key. Well, I'm joined in the studio this evening by Rion Manson. Now, you've probably heard of him, and a lot of us would think he was crazy because he's done the most incredibly crazy things. He's done around Africa on my bicycle, around Madagascar on my kayak, and a number of other things. But to those are the two we're going to be interested in talking about this evening because he's got some talks coming up here in Cape Town at the one and only hotel, which I'll tell you about later. But Rion, welcome to the show. Thank you for making some time. You're dashing around like a mad person. Sure. And to actually find some time to grab you into the studio is quite a feat. Oh, man, I, you know, my life has changed 12 years ago. When I hear you just introduce me like that, you know, people sometimes think I'm crazy. But they, they, they listen to me on radio and sometimes see me on TV and they see I can string a sentence together. But it has got a little bit busy. I, a little um, bit busy. It has got a little bit busy. It's <laughs> an understatement. I mean, I just got back from Drakensberg late last night and this morning back up again and, and then end of this week to Kuala Lumpur and to um, travel a bit. I just got back from Canada just going through London, and it never ends. I mean, I've got a Great Dane puppy, and when I missed seeing him for three weeks, he's a totally different dog. So you can imagine my life now. Listen, it's, it's a pleasure being here. Thank you. Oh, that's, that's Rion in a nutshell, basically. Um, we, he, he's going to be doing some talks at the one and only hotel here on the 9th of May. He's going to be talking about around Africa on my bicycle and on the 10th of May around Madagascar on my kayak. Now, there's a number of talks happening at the one and only, but those, they're coming up quite soon. So if you want him to book, I'll give you all those details in a moment. But Rion, where did this compulsion or this passion for travel and adventure come from? Have you always been like that as a child growing up? I think we all as South Africans are. I just think, you know, you, you speak to any male South African that would know of what I do, and they just wish they could be in my position. They always just say they'd love to do what I do. I think not many people in South Africa, unless you've probably read around Africa on the bicycle, you would then have an understanding of what I actually have gone through to get to this point. But, no, nah, man, from a, from a young kid, I grew up in Richards Bay in Zululand on the north coast. Legavans would run into our garden, and we, I mean, chameleons and everything that people would take as something... Odd was normal for us, you know, as, as a kid in Richard's Bay. So, no, I think it's in our blood as a South African, but um, it's manifested itself in three big journeys for me. Now, around Africa on my bicycle, you, you, you make it sound like a fun adventure. It was a fun adventure, but there were some sort of hairy moments. It was not exactly all fun games and happy smiles. No. I mean, you were arrested there, were you not, when you were on your I trip? had a lot of experiences that were uncomfortable. Mm. That's a way to turn them. But, man, I even take it back. If we want to really analyze what I what I achieved, and if I may use that word, it may sound a little bit arrogant, but I achieved something in Africa that wasn't just about going through Liberia when it was in full-scale war. Have you seen the movie Blood Diamond? No, I haven't. The movie Blood Diamond, Leonardo DiCaprio in mm, I know, Sierra I know Leone, what you and, mm. and that was Hollywood's take on where I was when the war was in full swing, and I was on a bicycle all alone, held by rebels one day, beaten up, and my life was going to go that 26th of February 2004. So that wasn't even a rest. That was just I knew I was going to die. I didn't feel threatened. I've been threatened many times in my life. So a lot of difficult times. But as I sit here with you now, just this feeling just comes over me that I don't think people sometimes understand what it was to stand at the waterfront that morning, September the 9th, 2003, when preparing for something that people mocked and ridiculed me for, and five people and a dog said goodbye to me, and I told the world I was going to circumnavigate this continent of Africa. For a moment, if you pause and think how, what I was taking on, many people don't understand how massive Africa is. I was going to do it on a bicycle. Hey, I was a fool. I was naive. I was dumb. But if you talk about danger, sure, Al-Qaeda caught me in Algeria. Rebels held me in Liberia, the model rebels. 
I got lost in a few of the deserts that I went through, northern Sudan. I literally filmed myself saying goodbye to everybody that I cared for. I mean, I was attacked by hyenas in the Libyan desert. Oh, there's just many opportunities. But when I speak of that, as I tell you, I was in difficult situations. At the same time, memories flood back of how good people were to me. I was about to say that to you because one of the things that comes through quite a lot when I talk to people who've traveled on this continent is that, you know, it's known as the dark continent and, mm. you know, it's like quite scary. Don't, I mean, what you were doing, 99% of the people would never attempt to do what you did. Mm. But the one thing that comes through from people who have traveled through the continent is the amazing hospitality and the friendliness and the openness of the people of this continent. Definitely. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Jim Clancy from CNN. Mm. I don't know if he was interviewing me and it was a it was a lovely interview. We actually spent like 20 minutes live and um, he cornered me 30 seconds to go and he said to me, Rian, two years, two months, what no other person on the planet has even attempted to do, what did you learn? I never answered that. And sure, you actually, you touch on it when you say, I answered him by saying, never again can I just lean forward and shake somebody's hand and prejudge them because of the color of their skin there. And everybody that says, oh, I do not judge, you do. You lean forward and you say, that person got a different skin color, speaks a different language, has got a different religion. I unfortunately was doing that too. Didn't know it, didn't believe it. But after the Africa journey, changed 100%. I rather look for the things I have in common with somebody. It sounds a little bit hippified. No, but it's, 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 it's an amazing lesson to learn. Mm. And, and nothing else. I mean, that, that for life is an amazing lesson. Unbelievable. Mm. And for a lesson for life, people say to me, why do I do this? I've learned so many lessons that now help me in life. And what did I do, man? I circumnavigated Africa on a bicycle 10 years, 11 years ago. Oh, hang on, you also went around Madagascar in a kayak. Yes. And we won't get to the Iceland part no. as well. <laughs> sure. I think that's the most recent one that it people, is. you did that with Dan Skinstad yeah, as well. Yeah, we, we did something special there. Tell us about the Madagascar, I mean, because that wasn't also, I mean, that wasn't, you don't look for easy things, do you? No. I always used to I love Africa, and people beat their chests and say, I love Africa, I'm an African. Hey, blah, blah, do it. The proof is in the pudding, as cliched as we can get. Go and prove it. I was planning another journey and saying, how can I be a chip off the block of my great ancestry? How can I? We talk about Rian Mansa going around Africa on a bicycle. Yes, I did go through difficult times. No more courage was shown by, by our ancestors, black, white, Indian, for them to get on ships, for them to um, cross the massive rivers, etc., etc. I had to show some of the guts and determination, some of it, fraction of it, and Madagascar, I'd missed a chunk of Africa. Uh, if you look at a map, you must understand how intimately that image of Africa is to me. I, I look at it and I've got a story for every single spot on that continent's coastline. Madagascar, when I looked at Africa, I could just see this chunk of... Uh, Sitting there on the edge. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and I was just saying, Rian, you actually haven't finished up with Africa. Mm. You've got that, that world's fourth largest island. It's not a small little piece of fly across to Mauritius if you've ever done that. And you fly over Madagascar for hours in an aeroplane. And that's just the, the breadth, not even the width. So, yeah, now I took on Madagascar. Corin, if I say, come on, come with me on holiday, just refuse. Point blank. Uh, I, watch I, me. I would definitely refuse. I yeah, no, I, <laughs> I am so bad at choosing countries that are going to go through political problems. On the Africa trip, I think I went through, I'm talking about real deal political coups. Once you guys sit on, at home watching on TV and saying, goodness gracious, what, happening, what is happening to those people? And you I was there you. in my bicycle. Madagascar, the DJ, Andre Rajolina, spinning discs. He's a big... DJ that you could imagine with the bling and the, the chains hanging around his neck. He's a DJ in Tananarive at the time when I get there. A year later, he's running the country. 
Now, there you've, got to, you've got to ask yourself, things aren't normal in a country like that. And South Africans were blamed for that committed the atrocities, the murdering the people in the capital. Literally on his TV station, they had subtitles um, showing white South Africans with beards, similar to what I look like, and saying that these are the South African mercenaries. So you can imagine my, everywhere I went, as soon as I, was, I told people I was South African, shame, you know, I can understand that people have to believe the TV. Okay, so I was in prison five times there. The last time was for four days, three and a half days, so three days in the prison. And I've been in a lot of prisons. So, I mean, if I'm, gonna com- if I'm allowed to complain a little bit about that last prison sentence, that was, that scarred me to some degree. And what were you in prison for? Um, I arrived in a little town called Tariq Tariq, which is right on the south. Yeah, it was a dangerous part of that coastline. I mean, I was living on adrenaline. If I've been in scary situations where I can feel adrenaline go, on those that last 300 kilometers of the bottom coastline, I was on adrenaline permanently. And I landed, and a, a fisherman uh, found me. I was in very bad shape. My hands were bleeding from the paddling. And he took me back to the village. He got three, four guys. We carried my kayak to the village and I rested because of huge seas that were hitting the rock shelves. The mayor of the town got drunk that night, found out I was South African, and just called the military from a town that was about three hours' drive. Mbovumbe is the town's name. They, they put the entire military to fetch this hands-bleeding, worn-out character with a scraggly beard, no finance, no money, and they took me in the vans to Mbovumbe, Everybody was drunk late that evening, couldn't uh, negotiate with anybody. They didn't, they even believed that I had photoshopped my Africa book. Fortunately, I had a, a copy of Around Africa and had a picture with me in Madiba. It had, they believed I was a mercenary and I was there to kill Andrew Rajalina. And then just that first night was hectic in that, in that prison. But again, if, I, if you ask me now about what do I understand about Malagasy's and what do I understand about colonialism, mine goes way back. Mine's not about what I maybe read. I can tell you those guys only treated me that way because of the, the, the results and the, the, their memories related to colonialism. I'm just sitting here quite speechless. But you mentioned Madiba. I mean, he actually contacted you. After he, I think he saw you on television. Unbelievable. Sunday night. I'm busy sitting there. I, a little bit emotional if I think about it now. I was, I was sitting, I was lying on a friend's sofa in his house and was busy watching Carte Blanche and... Those memories just came back and I was blown away. I get goosebumps now if I, I think of that night. And I, I, I thought, yes, really, you actually have achieved something. In my mind, I was quietly saying, yes, see, give yourself a little pat on the back because you always talk things down. You always do. And grow up a little bit and give yourself a pat on the back. My friends started calling. Wow, that phone was just going. My friends calling. I stood on the phone for about two, three hours walking around my friend's kitchen. I stand in his kitchen. Shane Smart, his house um, in uh, Bloberg, in his kitchen, I said to my one friend, Captain, said to me, hey, listen, you need to get off the phone now. I could see them all trying to talk to me because somebody was trying to call. Eventually, uh, uh, with Madiba having watched me, the same carte blanche program had tried to get the people to call me to say, listen, can I come meet with him the following week? So I checked my diary to see if I was available. Oh, I'm sure you no, made joking. yourself no, available. Please, that's my joke, my shame. Please don't take that seriously. Shucks. I was getting I, a bit concerned no, there for a moment. No, I mean, I just, I could not believe it. I, I mean, of course, my friends and my family, that were awesome for them to, to be so proud of me. Like, they just could not believe what I actually had achieved. And, ah, Madiba, I mean, I stood with him that Thursday morning. And I can tell you the whole story of just meeting him. Everybody has their Madiba moment. But he asked if I could come and see him. Come on. We're little, I come from Richards Bay, a small little town. Speak to my teachers. Speak to my, the people who are close to me, to the mayors of, of Richards Bay. And they'll say, yes, Rian was naughty. Rian was a guy who could have made things happen. But I would not have been the guy 
that you would have thought medieval would have asked to meet. And he stood next to me, and when I gave him this present, a little picture of a, and I always say it's quite arrogant to give Madiba a picture of yourself. So, <laughs> so I gave him a picture. I must have made a change for him. No, you it know. was beautiful. He was, he was so cool. And I remember standing next to him, and I'll give you the Reader's Digest version, which I always battle to do. Yes, the media, I first of all didn't know that they were there for me and him. Obviously, they were more there for him, of course. But I stood there giving him this picture, and he's looking at the picture, and it's me with, next to a Senegalese guy um, on a horse cart, and the guy was laughing. And the, the, the reason he was laughing, not many people know, is I told this guy that I've come from South Africa. And I started realizing the ludicrousness of what I was attempting to do. Senegal, obviously, on the West Coast. Mm. And he was laughing. I said to Madiba, Madiba, this happened 500 times a day. This moment, this, this capture, this, the camera caught that one se- that split second, that happened 500 times a day with so, uh, different people, little kids, gogos. Uh, Madiba just absorbed it, and then he kept quiet. And he stared at this picture, stared at the picture, and he looked up at me like this, and he looked down at the picture again, standing next to Madiba. So I don't know, should I speak? Should I stand still? What, what should I do? And Madiba then looked at me and he said to me, I tell people, and it's difficult to say it. I've got a little bit brave in the last few years. He was looking at me with admiration. Can you believe that? Hmm? Madiba looking at me with admiration. I'd gone and bought myself a new white college shirt to meet with him because I didn't have college shirts. I went to bought it to go meet with him. I was not in a position to be meeting Madiba. And, you know, a way of changing my life, you know. And that actually also taught me that time meeting with him. And Shane, he left me with great words. He said to me, you don't know what you've achieved. You don't know. What you have done will inspire the youth of this continent to think bigger. And you won't believe how true he is. If I stand in front of a, how true he was that day with those words. If I stand in front of a school today and I tell my story to kids, I can see how their minds just kick into sixth, seventh, eighth gear. They just say, no ways. People are telling me I can't do stuff. I can Sure, it's amazing. So his words ring true. I know how you tell that story without... I mean, I'm, I'm sitting listening to you with a lump in my throat now. I mean, no, it's, it's, it's sure. a very emotional... Got goosebumps. Yeah, it's I a very goosebumps emotional now. thing. Mm. Do you think that you are... I mean, you, you have went out there to achieve something for yourself. Mm, and in doing so, you've actually achieved four millions, Worth effectively. Out of doubt. And so I can't wait till we get to Mars. I can't wait until <laughs> we find out what's <laughs> happening in the Well, you'll like, be the first outside. one cycling around it. They said there's one-way tickets to Mars. I said, people saying, how oh, ludicrous, who would buy that? I was saying to you myself, hey, I would buy that one-way ticket. Are you out of your mind? If I had the money, I would have bought that ticket immediately. You know they're selling tickets to Mars. I know. One way. Yeah, there's actually there, there was this whole thing. They're actually looking to build this colony there. Sure, yeah, that's what you're talking sure. about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they, it takes so long to get there that they can't bring them back. Mm. That's what you know. It's, it's, we're not joking. There really is this thing. <laughs> They're working on it. So we're not. Both of us are not completely mad. There is actually this thing. But if you want to go and hear more about Rion, I mean, you, he can talk all night and all day. So if you'd like to go and hear him for a lot longer than, unfortunately, what you've got here, you can pop along to the one and only hotel on the 9th of May. He's doing. Um, around Africa on my bicycle, and on the 10th of May, around Madagascar on my kayak. And for any of these, if you'd like to book, and there's lots of other talks happening there, there's an email address. It's restaurant.reservations at oneandonlycapetown.com, but it might be easier just to call them on 021-431-4511, 021 431-4511 so Rian Mansa will be appearing at the one and only hotel the 9th and 10th of May and uh, I really suggest you go and listen to him but if you'd like to read more about Rian's adventures you can go to his website it's www.rianmanser.com and that's R-I-A-N-M-A-N-S-E-R rianmanser.com and if you need any of this information if you've missed any of it just check out the Facebook page it's Travel on SAFM
And that's it for Time to Travel for this week. I'm Karen Key. Thanks for joining me this evening, and I'll be back with you next Monday evening just after 9.